0: I'd like you to take your scriptures this morning and turn back to that passage in Judges 6 we read just a little bit ago. Today we're going to talk about warriors. There have been a lot of famous warriors all throughout history. In fact, even some books have been written about their lives and their exploits, such as Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Spartacus, Richard the Lionheart, Julius Caesar, William Wallace, even the movie Braveheart after his life. And we, in our secular culture especially, we admire warriors and all that they are able to accomplish for their country and for their people. And we even have fictional ones that we make up um, just so that we can be inspired by them and we watch them on the big screen. And the older ones like Gladiator, Thor, Aragorn of Lord of the Rings, Luke Skywalker—it just goes on and on. We love warriors, people that can do all the things and defeat all the enemies that we never think that we could. The Bible, and namely Israel, has a long history of famous warriors of its own kind in the Old Testament. There is Joshua who led his people against the enemies of God in Canaan. There was David who beat the Philistines. And all of his mighty men were actually listed. There were about 60 of them. And one of them, uh, whose name was Benaiah in 2 Samuel 20, it says that he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. That's something that not many can do. Uh, The book of Judges, the one that we're looking at this morning, is full of such warriors. There's Shamgar, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox There is Jephthah, Samson, famous or infamous, you decide. Um, they are listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But the warrior that is mentioned in our text today um, is called by God himself, a mighty man of valor. Um, he too along with some of the great names that are far more familiar, is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a warrior of faith. In fact, in his time, when you mentioned his name with his sword alongside of the Lord's sword, the enemies of God trembled at the thought of having to face him. In fact, it's interesting that his name, Gideon, means one who cuts down. And the nickname they gave him for all of his victories over Israel's enemies was Jarubel, which means to contend with or fight with Baal. Um, He is known, very well known, for all of his exploits. In fact, his name, actually when you break down Gideon, is Gitdon in Hebrew. It means literally great warrior. See, but there's one thing about him. When you look at him and you first meet him in our text, He looks like anything but a great warrior. I mean, he is definitely Clark Kent, but not Superman. Um, He is not the guy that we think is going to deliver Israel. He's not the judge who's going to take on the Midianites and the Amalekites, which far outnumber. But God chooses him. And in chapter 6 and verse 10, if you look in our text, you'll find that the first time we see Gideon, he's not hunting down the enemies He's hiding from them. That's right. He's basically in a cave used as a place, a threshing floor, because the Midianites every season come and steal all of their crops and practically all their food. And so, to be able to maintain food enough to survive, they have to hide out and thresh it. They can't even do it out in the open. And, and, And what you find when you see Gideon is not a warrior, but a worrier. He's worried about the Midianites. He's worried about them attacking. And he goes on and on. He worries when God calls him to say, you go and save them. He's worried that he's not good enough. Later on in our text, he's worried about what his father says when he tears the altar of Baal down. That's all you see. In the first few moments of his life in Scripture on the pages of the Bible, here's what he is. He's not a warrior. He's a worrier. How does God... Take a guy like that and turn him into someone that you'd put in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? How does God transform a warrior into a warrior? One more question How does God do that in your life and mine? How can God take someone like us and turn him into someone that could be recorded in the pages of Scripture? Well, let me tell you how he does it. He has to tell Gideon, before he transforms him, he has to inform him. He has to tell him, you're not a worship warrior, you're a worship weakling. He has to get him at where he's at to see really what the condition, the true spiritual condition of his life. And this is important, hear me, because on the surface of this text, It is Israel versus Midian. It's Israel fighting Midian for freedom, for food, for everything. That's the main story up front. But behind the story, the back story is always in all the battles of the Bible. It's not about Israel versus whoever they're fighting. It is a worship war. It is always about who will be God. And the story, like all the other ones in this text, are about this. Who's really God in Gideon's life and Israel's life? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? See, Midian had not always been an enemy of Israel. Midian was a boy's name. He was the son of Abraham and Keturah. It was the band of Midianites that took Joseph when he was sold by his brothers into Egypt. It was Midian where Moses ran when he was afraid of Pharaoh, when he had killed one of the soldiers and he ran for his life. It was in Midian that Moses met Jethro, who was the priest of Midian, and then married his daughter, a Midianite woman named Zipporah. And it was in Numbers 25 when the people of Midian seduced Israel to worship Baal that they became the enemies of Israel. But they weren't just enemies physically, hear me. They had been enemies spiritually. And here's what had happened in Israel. Here's what Gideon was facing. In Gideon's day... They were practicing syncretic worship. And that means this, trying to put two things into one. Here's what had happened. Listen, because this could be you. It wasn't that God was punishing them with the Midianites because they had totally gotten rid of him in their life and worship. They had not. They had not totally subtracted God from their lives on worship on Sundays or during the week, so to speak. See, they had worshiped him. They knew about him. The story begins in the first few verses of chapter, 11 through, uh, chapter six, verse 1 through 13. See, Gideon's dad, Joas, he knew the Exodus story. When he complains to God, he says, hey, what happened to you, God? Where have you been? I saw when you delivered us out of Egypt. I saw all the miracles you did. Where are they now? In other words, he sees the Exodus story as a reason to, as a proof to complain against God, as if somehow it was God who had forsaken them. But see, he hadn't subtracted God altogether, but he had added Baal to his worship. Because see, God wasn't coming through, and God wasn't answering his prayers like he thought he should, and God wasn't doing all the things they wanted him to do. So they added gods, pragmatic gods, gods that would help them all through the things that they would face during the week. And so see, it wasn't that they got rid of God and subtracted him altogether, It was that they had added him. So here's how that works in your life. See, when you add other gods to your life, you will look at the past history of what God has done and you will begin to think, oh, God's not doing that now, so he must have forsaken us. But see, the prophets in chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, they also tell Israel the Exodus story. But you know what they say? It's not that God has forsaken you. You know why God isn't doing all those miraculous and great things in your life? Because you have forsaken him. You can't see it. Because, listen, Baal's blind. Baal's blind us. See, before God could transform Gideon, he had to inform Gideon, you are not worshiping me right You are not putting me at the center. I am not your everything. I'm one thing, not your everything. See, before God could use Gideon to destroy the idols around him, he had to destroy the idols within him. See, the first battle, listen, the first battle any worship warrior faces is the battle in his own backyard. See, what is the bail this morning in your backyard? See, it could be a relationship that compromises your worship. It could be a career that takes precedent over God and you have no longer time to worship him or serve him, hardly ever. It's an imbalanced fixation on your image and you're more worried about what people think you look like and act like and all those things, including the gym and all that goes with it, are far more important than making services but it wasn't always like that. You see, God's worship warrior makes Jesus the Lord of everything in their lives. So in these few minutes we have, I want to unpack this morning the transformation that God makes in our lives to make us and form us into a worship warrior. I want to see how God changed Gideon and how he can change you and me. There are two things, and they are really two sides of the same coin, so let me show you one and then the other. The first one being this. You become a worship warrior when you tear down the altar of Baal in your own backyard. God has called Gideon to be the deliverer of his people from Midian, and he doesn't waste any time. Look at our text, chapter 6 and verse 25. It says, that night, that night, the Lord said to him, listen, if you Allow God to begin the work of transformation in your life, to turn you into a worship war. You will be tested and often immediately. Very few verses earlier, before chapter 6:25. Gideon gives his life to God after he has God come down as the angel of the Lord. There takes burns up a sacrifice, and he is totally wowed by God. And in that moment, he builds this private altar to God for the sacrifice. And God says to him now, now that night, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. You have chosen privately to worship me, but now I want you to make a worship statement. I want you to do it publicly. See, Gideon, you and I are good, and we have peace. That's what it says at the end of verse 24. We have peace, and now that you and I have peace, I want you to go make war. I want you to make war on Baal. And here's why. There can only be one altar in your life and in your family. In order to worship the true God, you must get rid of all the false gods. They cannot stay. Have you ever had to have an exterminator come to your house? When I first moved in the house next door, at times we would have ants, and ants would come. And I've talked to people who have had, not ants, but they've had mice, roaches. Have you ever had roaches? Have you seen sprickets? Do you know what a spricket is? A spricket is kind of like a cricket and a spider, half and half. It's like, I, I think it's demonic, something. <laughs> Bed bugs, oh, horrendous. You have to call the exterminator. So I looked on the internet, not that I needed one at this point. But I looked on the internet, how do you get ready to have an exterminator come and get rid of the pests? Here's how to prepare your house for an exterminator. Step number one, clean your house. Thank you for the insult. That's just so the exterminator can have room to work and everything's organized, I suppose. And then it says this, (laughs) remove the insects that you can see. I thought that was his job. Prepare outside your house. Clean up all your garbage. Thank you. Insult number two. Cut your lawn, in case all the bugs are out there, I don't know. Have your children and pets leave the house. Not an encouraging word at all. Group your furniture. Put all your furniture in the middle of the rooms, in every room of your house. And then it says this. Get a professional. (laughs) Thank you. And then it says this. For big problems, and they list them, skunks, raccoons, snakes, alligators. How many of you ever had to have the exterminator for alligators? They said, you can't call the exterminator. You have to call, it used to be animal control, but now they have made a new name for it, wildlife removal. I was in Texas and I went to my cousin's friend's house and he had a job. He was an exterminator. Now this is in Texas though. And so he was telling me that not that long ago that he got a call and someone said, I had an eight foot gator in my backyard. Would you come and get it? And he told us the whole story about how he had to take and get an eight foot alligator by himself and take it out of there. He said this, when you have to go after big problems like gators, You have to totally remove that gator. You can't just put them back in the water. They have to go completely. And he says, no preparation needed. See, when they're big, you don't have to clean your house. You don't have to put your furniture in the middle of the room. When you've got a gator, you just want them gone. Can I tell you what God's saying to Gideon? Gideon, now that you know me, you are my bail remover. You're my bale remover, because bales are a big problem. And I want you to remove the bales where they need to be exterminated first, remove first. You know where it is, Gideon? In your own backyard. Say, I want you to be my professional bale remover. How does God do that? Listen to the text in verse 25. Take your father's bull, and then take a second bull, and that bull is seven years old. You see, this is important, listen, because the symbol for Baal that they would carve all over the place to know that this was a temple of Baal worship, it was a bull. That was the symbol for Baal. So take the symbol of Baal, take a real one, a bull. In fact, take your dad's bull who worships Baal himself. Take his bull, and I want you to knock down the altar that goes to the bull, Baal, And then I want you to take a second bull that's seven years old. Why seven years old? Because in chapter 6, verse 1, Israel had been really in bondage to the Midianites for how long? Seven years. So I want you to take this bull that represents Baal and this seven-year-old bull, because you've been disobedient for seven years and your life has been awful, I want you to take these bulls and I want you to break down the altar of Baal and I want you to get rid of it. I want you to cut it down I want you to get rid of the Asherah, which is the pole that was the female consort of the the god El, Ba'el. I want you to get rid of all of it. And I want you to use your dad's bulls who worships Baal to do it. In other words, we'd say today... I want you to live up to your name that I gave you, Gideon. I want you to be the great warrior. But you know what? To be the great warrior that I have for you and all the enemies I want you to face and all the battles I want you to win, you know what? where it starts, Gideon? Right here in your house with your dad, your family, and your friends. Dads, are you worship warriors or worship weaklings? Fathers, can I say it to you? It is time. It is time to remove the bales from your backyard. It's time that we talk about, and we do all the time, we talk about secularization or biblically the canonization of our culture and the public schools and the curriculums and the poison they're feeding our children early on in in such small grades. We talk about the decay and we denounce the unabashed and shameless idolatry of sexuality in our culture that permeates the social media and the internet all around us. And we talk about what needs to be done in our country to stop it. And we talk about all of those things. But you know what we rarely talk about? We rarely talk about the idols and the altars of Baal that you and I have erected right here in our own homes. See, we don't need to call the exterminator for our country. You know what? We need the wildlife removal perhaps for our own homes. Because we have taught our children and have sacrificed them to the Baal of sports. And how using their talents and hoping they'll be division one and being pro someday. We have made something good into something bad. Because it has become everything. And we sacrifice everything. Our kids can't go to youth group. They don't come to church. You miss everything to make a game. Why? Because it is the bail in our backyards. And education and the degrees and the school they go to. Things that aren't inherently bad in themselves. We have taken good things and made them God things. The bale of materialism and all the things we have because our God is the American dream. We even allow indiscriminately our kids to carry portable idolatry on their iPhones. That isn't covered the bale of godless music that we allow them to listen to with their headset sets that we don't make them take off. The bale in the social media and the chat rooms we allow them to participate in. The bales that are on our TV that we don't monitor in the movie channels that they could see so readily. The bales that they just go in their closet and pull out the clothes and the bales that they wear. See, and those are only the bales of the flesh. I haven't even talked about the bales of the spirit. Dads, it's time. It's time that you let God get a hold of your heart like Gideon and say, listen, no bales in our home anymore. It's time for the moms in our homes. No more complaining, no more fighting, no more opposition to your husband. And start loving our children in the bitterness and the unforgiveness and the holding the grudge that we have had because of back difficulties. They have to be go. It's time to say, our teens need to say, my phone is for worshiping God only because I'm for worshiping God only. It's time at Faith Baptist Church that we need families who would tear down the altars of Baal and stop blaming the schools only or our culture only and start taking responsibility for the Baals in our own backyard. That's why we need a bull of seven years. You know why? We need to say it's time too long have we waited, too long have we allowed the bales to poison our children and infiltrate our marriages and our families and destroy what we stand for. It's time for our young adults and the idolatry of dating and marriage and selfishness to cease. It's time for our seniors to forsake the bales of only thinking about oneself and about the years that we spend and the money on trivial pursuit, and we think because of our age that we can hang up everything in our ministry for God, it's no longer tolerable. Not if we worship and our worship warriors of God. And you know what God says? Not only do I want to take their bulls and tear down their altar. Do you hear what he says? And I want you to build God one, and I want you to build your new one on top of their old one. Is that a message? And, and this is kind of like strong, but God says, I want you to put it in their face. I want them to know this, that when you become a worship warrior, everything means everything. That means that the wood that you cut down from the Asherah that was beside it, I want you to take the wood and I want you to burn it on the fire. I want you to take their wood, their animals, their sacrifice, their altar, and I want you to destroy all of it. You see? That's what worship warriors do. That's what moms and dads and teenagers and young adults and seniors, that's what you do when you're serious about being a worship warrior. You see, you have to tear down the altars of Baal in your own backyard. But that's not all. Flip the coin over. See, the text says, you have to be, when you become a worship warrior, you also have to build the altar of God back into your own life in your own backyard. Listen, no matter what the cost... See, God wants Gideon and he wants you and I to make a public statement, not just a private one. Build the altar right on top of where the other one stood. See, I want you to use their stuff, sacrifice. Why? Because here's the message. When people wake up and see that, here's what the message is. We are done with Baal. We're done with it and we're not Going back. He didn't tell them, leave the Baal one and and put God's altar, the new one, beside it. No, he didn't say that. Because that's what they've already literally been doing. What he tells them, if you're a worship warrior, this one can't exist. But this one can. And this is the only one. And you have to destroy this one. You know why? We're not going back. One of the hardest places to live out your singular devotion to God and worship him only is at home. Have you ever limited your public loyalty to Jesus by limiting what you say to people and what you do around people because they're your family or your friends? People come over for holidays and you do a short prayer and you don't really talk about God and you kind of let it go. Why? Because you're not going to take a hard line on, on issues that are controversial. You don't want your family or friends thinking that you're some religious nut or some over-the-top fanatical person. So you kind of just don't say it straight or you don't say it at all. So when you're hanging around your buddies or your girls, you have to throw in a few bad words. Why? Because you're not completely out of it. You still want to fit in to some degree. Hey, you're going to have Jesus, but you know what? You've got to have a few words to make sure that everybody knows you're still with it. So when they crack their crude and inappropriate humor, you have to give a couple of chuckles. Why? Because you're not going to be antiquated in your morals. We have to be with it, See? We limit our conversations about the Bible and the gospel. You know why? Because we don't want to be known as the bigot or those who are progressive in their views and not really in touch with everybody and everything else going on. For Gideon, it was midnight madness. He agreed that God, yeah, you're the only one. I'm going to build an altar for you. But there was a problem with Gideon and it what kept him from doing all that God said. You know why? Because... He built it at night. See, it was good for what he did, but he built it at night. And you know why he did? Because he was afraid. You know what's gonna keep you this morning from breaking down the altar of Baal in your backyard and building a new one to God? I mean, and really taking God's advice seriously? You know what's gonna be? Fear. Fear will do it every single time. And so we tell ourselves, I'll be a private worship warrior for God. Uh, when, when no one else is around, I will hold the truths of God's word and I will love him. But publicly, <clears throat> might cost me too much. We begin to tell ourselves or maybe better ask ourselves, what will my parents say if I go against what everyone in my family believes? That's fear. What will my friends say if I'm unfriended, not just on Facebook or whatever, what if I'm unfriended in life? What if I'm unfriended and I'm no longer popular and people don't want to sit at my table and I'm not invited to the parties anymore and no one wants to date me? See, I want to love God and, search and worship him only, but, and that's fear. What if I'm no longer accepted and popular? That's fear. What if, what if, blank. See, all of those things that we fill in the blanks, you know what they are? They're fear. The fear of what? The fear that it'll cost me. And it will. It will cost you to be a worship warrior. I'm convinced that in order to fight your foes, you will first have to fight your fears. You'll have to fight the fear of losing out and not being popular and accepted and everyone liking you and worse. You cannot... And I repeat, you cannot worship God only more than the status quo. You cannot worship God more than your family. You cannot even worship God more than safety. Did you hear the text? They come up the next morning and everybody walks out and say, what? The Baal is gone. Who took our altar? Who took the Asherah? Who took all this stuff? It's been there for seven years. Who took it down? And everyone, he whispers, and someone, I don't know, one of the servants that he took out there, I don't know who told on him. Maybe his dad knew. It's his house. You know what they say? Bring out your son, Joash. You know why? Because he wrecked our Baal altar and took it down, and now we're going to kill him. That's a risk. That's a risk. If I come forward today at the end of the service, Pastor Walker and I ask God to begin to transform my life from the inside out to be a worship warrior, what will that mean for me tomorrow? That's what we're all worried about. That's what we're afraid of. Folks, you will have to face your fears. You will. But once you do, and you trust God that he's the only true God, and he's the only one that can deliver you in life from sin and everything else, you will say this as Gideon did, let the worship wars begin. Jarubel, that was his nickname. Not off the bat. He didn't start there. But he became the Baal basher. He did. Toward the end of our text in chapter 7, this guy that never would have thought that would have been a Baal would have been a Baal basher. He faced the Amalekites. He faces the Midianites, 120,000 of them, and God whittles down his forces to 300. That's not good odds. They still win. Why? Because he wasn't afraid any longer. He really believed that God was the only God, the true God, the living God. He had been transformed into a worship warrior but it started in his own backyard. So let me ask you, are you a worship warrior? Are you willing? Listen, think about it though. Are you willing to become one, to let God make you one? Here's what I believe. Let the seven years be all over. It is time. It is time that dads today, I'm gonna be a worship warrior in my home. I'm gonna lead my home spiritually spiritually. I'm a moms today. We need moms who will back up their husbands, that they might be on the same page spiritually and not let anything else come between them. We need teenagers who will not only do right before God, but do right by their parents. And even if it's a sacrifice of their friends and relationships, so be it. Let the worship wars begin. See, there are bales this morning, and they're not just out there. They are in here, and it's time that we destroy them. And in doing so, we also, together by the grace of God and for the glory of God, we build an altar to the true and living God alone, who is only worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. So let me ask you is that you? Are you a worship warrior? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, we're going to close our service with a song in just a moment. Perhaps you're here this morning and you'd say, Pastor Walker, I know I'm not a worship warrior because I don't worship God. I wouldn't have called my worship, if you want to say that way, I wouldn't have called it a baal, but I guess it is. I don't worship God because I don't know him. I've never come to recognize that Jesus his son died for me and rose again. Easter, that's what we call it, resurrection. I've never understood why that took place, but this morning I'd like to know why because I'd like to worship him and give my life to him. If he died for me and rose again so that my sins could be forgiven, I want to worship him. He's worthy of it. I don't know him. Honestly, I don't, but I would like to. In fact, I need to. With every head bowed and every eye closed, with you "Some this morning, Pastor Walker, I need to give my life to Jesus by faith that he might forgive me and redeem me so that I could worship him as he deserves. Would you put your hand up right now and I'll pray for you in just a moment. Thank you. Thank you. So anyone else? In the balcony, in the main floor, just put your hand. I need to worship God through Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I don't, but I need to. I really need to. Anyone else? Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you, young man. I appreciate it. Maybe you're here this morning and you know God. You haven't subtracted him out of your life altogether. But there's no doubt that you've added the bales. And they're in your backyard. And they're a big problem. You said, oh, it's because God, he's forsaken me. That's why I don't see his power in working my life. What if you're wrong? What if it's the opposite? What if it's like the prophet said? You know why you don't see God in your life? Because you've forsaken him. Because you've added the bales into your life. Today is the day. Let the seven years be over, let's break down the altar to Baal Today. Walking down this aisle won't do it. Kneeling at this altar, we call it, is good because you know what he wants? He wants you to do it publicly. He wants you to make a worship statement. I worship God alone. Alone in everything. I try to give you very explicitly an idea of what that might be like. And it will cost you, but he's worthy. Pastor Walker, pray for me. Pray for me today that this would be the day that the bales in my backyard would be no more. And then I would build back the altar of God to what it once was, what it should be for his glory in my life. With every head bowed and everybody closed, would you raise your hand if that's you this morning? Pray for me, Pastor. That's exactly what I need to do. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, anyone else? We're going to give an invitation. Dave's going to lead us in a moment. If you raise your hand and said, I don't know God, I only know Baal, but I want to know God, the Lord Jesus, and I want him to be the, my life. I want him to be my Lord and Savior. This is the day. This is the day. And if you raise your hand, you don't have to even come up here and say anything to anybody. Kneel on this altar. We'll know exactly what you're doing. You're going to say, I'm tearing down the altar. I'm kneeling at this one. God, I want to rebuild my life of worship to you alone. Would you do that? Please do. Don't hesitate. Father, help us. Help us. Your word is clear. Transformation can only take place by the work of your spirit and word. And we pray that as he does that even now, that you might move people's hearts, overcome even their fears that they're thinking about and the what-ifs right now that are going through their mind. Oh, God, may they lay it down and tear it down. They might give their lives to you fully with everything. For it's in your name we pray, amen.